You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Hi there, this is Mike. This is Tom. And we're here with Tabletop Genesis to talk about the second Mike Rutherford solo album, Acting Very Strange. And we have two special guests with us today. First, we have Catherine Stratton. Hello, Mike and Tom. Thank you so much for having me again. Yes, Catherine, you may remember, was on our Mike and the Mechanics album, uh, album, our Mike and the Mechanics show, <laughs> where we talked about the first album. So uh, I haven't we, been on one of their albums yet, but not yet. <laughs> There's still time. So we'll get you on there soon. So, and we also have a returning, not only a guest, our but returning a former champion. host, returning champion <laughs> is Mr. Simon Godfrey. Hey, hello, chaps and chapesses. How are you doing out there, Simon? I'm well, thank you very much for asking. Yes, happy to have you back. You know, we wanted to talk about this album when Tom and I were talking about it. We wanted to have people on who are very pro-Mike Rutherford, as we all are to an extent. But I think both of you, both Catherine and Simon, are very happily pro-Mike Rutherford. You kind of have to be when you run a Mike Rutherford fan site. So. You hope, yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to be somebody out there who's just like, oh, I hate this person. Let me create a website about them. So, <laughs> I so, think it's, uh, I, you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier that, uh, before the, the show started, but, you know, he's been there all the, all the while. And, and I won't say he's got a rough shake of it because like he's a member of Genesis and he's, uh, he's done a, he's had a very successful solo career, but in some ways he kind of almost like the Anthony Phillips like world sort of like, he tends to get overlooked a little bit with regards to, you know, when you think about, you know, the Collins as the, uh, the, the Gabriels and the, you know, the, all of the things that, you know, banks, basically everybody else. He's He's been there from the start, and um, he, I certainly don't think he gets enough props. Yeah, he's definitely like one of those people who, one of those members of Genesis who I think because his solo success is with Mike and the Mechanics, and that can be looked at as like, oh, that's poppy, that's, you know, its own thing and everything. It's easy to kind of not think about that career, even in comparison you know, there's certainly a small but vocal Tony Banks contingent out there who are, you know, championing his material and everything. And obviously, Peter and Phil have their, you know, massive fan bases and everything. And Ant Phillips has his fans. And so Mike, it's funny to say this compared to even like Phil, but Mike might even be the most mainstream out there. And I don't say that as a bad thing. I just say that as, you know, that's kind of what he was aiming for with his with especially with the mechanic you know so but we're not here to talk about the mechanics we're here to talk about his second solo album from 1982 acting very strange and so tom are you able to pull up the wikipedia for this and go over this i am able to and i would love to <laughs> <laughs> acting very strange is the second and final solo album by genesis <laughs> Again, that sounds a little that sounds a little a uh, little definitive right there, but we'll go with it. Uh, by guitarist, bassist Mike Rutherford, and the only album to feature him on lead vocals. It was released on seven September nineteen eighty two. Unlike the previous album, Small Creeps Day, Acting Very Strange uses a very raw and unpolished sound. 
<laughs> None of the album's singles charted in the U.S. or U.K. Top 100, but the lead single, Maxine, did make U.S. Billboard charts' mainstream rock tracks chart at number 37. Hmm. The song there was we go, also... mainstream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the song was also a top 40 pop hit in Canada, peaking at number 39. The album <laughs> itself was much more successful, reaching number 23 in the U.K. Really? That's surprising, actually. It, it, it is for many reasons. Uh, well, funnily enough, I do remember seeing like billboard posters for this album um, really? actually out on the street back in the UK at the time. Um, although, if I'm being really honest with you, this was slightly before I became uh, a Genesis fan. So it was one of those things which I, I noticed in passing, but only pondered upon later in, later in years. Right, because it's it wasn't an album that, you know, burned up the charts and singles weren't played everywhere. So, you know, this is we should probably address the elephant in the room right off the bat that this is this album is often considered the worst of the Genesis <laughs> solo releases. And yeah. I think we had that reaction when we put it out there. Many people will get into this a little bit more in detail, but many people said, why are you making me listen to this album again? <laughs> and which... I, you know, I don't know if it's Stockholm syndrome, but I'm kind of okay with this album in a weird way. Like, like listening to it for the podcast, the more I listened to it, I was like, this is not great. I'm certainly not going to, that's not my hypothesis or thesis for this show, but it is not as bad as people say it is. And again, maybe damning with faint praise, but I think that's okay. It is part of Genesis canon. And if you look at all of the sophomore efforts, there's two points I wanted to make here. Mm. All their sophomore efforts, the only one who really had other people other than themselves sing was Steve Hackett. So on, on sure, uh, right. what was his second? Please Don't Touch. He had some other guest vocalists. But Mike did all his singing on Acting Very Strange. Tony did it all on The Fugitives. Obviously, Phil did it on Hello, I Must Be Going. And Peter did it on Scratch. Right. And Anthony Phillips did it on Wise after the event. Right. So all of them did their own singing on their second album, and it's part. So why would we not cover it? And the second part was when I was thinking about that, what other band has had every single member as prolific in their solo careers as Genesis? Yeah. I couldn't think of anywhere like, we're not talking, all right, the lead singer does some solo work, and maybe the lead guitarist did some work. We're talking drummer, singer, bassist, yeah. keyboardist. Everybody's Everybody. done something, yeah. yeah. Which is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it's definitely kind of a, a positive thing out there. And so this is this is an album that, you know, has its detractors and has its fans. And I think it'll be, this is going to be, I think, one of the more interesting conversations that we've had because we don't usually, we haven't had an album like this that has such a, again, I, I'm going to say a negative reputation about it. And which is just the fact of it, you know, whether whether you agree with that or not, this is also going to be interesting because I know that listening to it for this podcast was Tom's very first time listening to this album. <laughs> yes, this was I knew of this record's existence and I might have Googled or YouTubed Maxine uh, years sure. ago, okay. but I'd never had a copy. I never listened to it on YouTube, which was pretty much for me the only way to get it. I started collecting vinyl around 2020 mm -hmm. and some guy at his garage sale had 
cutouts of this vinyl and The Fugitive. So I picked up both and I said to myself, I'm not going to listen to it until we're ready to record the episode. So <laughs> almost three years later, I finally we are <laughs> on the turntable and tried to take my best initial impressions best I could. But it, it was, I kind of like The Fugitive and I'm not going to swell too much. I would like to have put this on sooner. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> that, that we can still take that in many different ways, but yes. we'll we'll explore that as we move forward. Catherine, what was your history with this album? Um, honestly, I had never heard of it until I really got into Genesis, and then mm. I sort of I decided one day to listen to all of Genesis, you know, from start to finish. And once I'd finished that, I sort of went to each individual member and wanted to sort of sift through their back catalog. But even then, I think it was one of the last ones that I came to. I listened to Small Creeps Day first. Okay. And I didn't I didn't know that he didn't do the vocals on that at first. And the, the first time I listened to it, I was like, wow, that's really <laughs> impressive, but it doesn't sound anything like him. And I did a bit more research and I was like, that's because it isn't. Right. <laughs> and so I went to find this one because I mostly I was actually even just curious to hear what he sounded like in comparison. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so excellent, Simon. How about you? When uh, I know that you recently just bought this on vinyl, I think you spent thousands of dollars on eBay to get a copy. Yeah, I, so. I have a long and storied history with this album, which makes me doubly happy to be on this podcast <laughs> because, um, and and I think everybody, uh, both on this podcast and out there listening, probably have a very similar experience to me in the fact that I picked up this album. Uh, and there's there are albums that you pick up where they catch you at exactly the right moment in your life mm -hmm. and it it matters not a jot whether or not the album is popular or unpopular it means something to you and acting very strange is that album for me i was just out of uh, what we call secondary school in the UK. That's, uh, uh, you know, about to, to head to uh, college and university. And this is one of the things which I think we'll get into a little bit later. I was caught between two lives, transitioning between two lives. And I think musically, this album resonated with me because I think this album is also a transition between two states of being in his musical career. And I don't know why the bad singing completely went over my head. I don't know if that's because like really at the end of the day, I, you know, I, I also have a, a fairly healthy respect for a lot of punk and new wave bands and, you know, that singing was, you know, at least, at least accurate singing and, and great vocalization are not something that's highly prized. It was all to do with the energy in the song. And this album had an energy about it. There's a lot, I mean, you can say a lot of things, negative things about this this album, but it does not lay down. It sits up and, and, and says, this is who I am. It's, it's a very unapologetic album. And that, I think, really resonated with me. And uh, as we get into the tracks, I'll, I'll maybe we can all sort of like talk a little bit about it. But I have history with this album. Sure. Um, yes. And as a result, I... You know, I have a very different perspective uh, than maybe some person that's arriving and listening to it for the first time or in the past had listened to it <laughs> and just said, I don't like it and never listened to it again. Yeah, I, I, a lot of people, I believe, not a lot, because I think the, the age 
span of fans definitely varies. But if you're talking about a lot of people who grew up listening to early Genesis, 70s Genesis, they bought Small Creeps Day, they were very excited. I think they came at Mike's second solo release at a different vo- viewpoint than a lot of us did maybe going backwards the other way. It's the same with like Invisible Touch. If you grew up in the 70s and all of a sudden your band put out Invisible Touch, you're going to be like, what the hell is this? Whereas we happen to get Invisible Touch at the right time in our lives where, you know, for as many Genesis fans that say that's crap, that was our starting point. Right. And it's where you come in with the album that, you know, always stays with you. Never diss a gateway album. <laughs> exactly. And I know for me, I remember when I was getting into Genesis in, you know, junior high, high school, that kind of mid eighties time period. I remember seeing this album on CD at the local record store that I would often go to and didn't get it at the time. I got it on vinyl at some point, which I still have and listened to it maybe once or twice. And I was like, that's not very good. But didn't think it was horrible. I was just kind of like, ah, it's it's kind of samey to me. There, and it wasn't, it didn't catch my ear at the time. And then I finally did get it on CD, which made it easier to listen to, and listen to it. And I'm like, yeah, it's still not great, but it's it's not. It, it at that point, I think I was probably more aware of its reputation, and maybe because I do root for the underdog and kind of have more of an optimistic bent it really is like, it's not as bad as people say it is. It's again, I'm not going to say it's great because it's not, but it's, it's not horrible. And there are definitely issues with it. Like, well, like, like with all the things we love, we can pick it apart a little bit. I think that to me, a lot of the songs sound like they need a draft or two more before they're done. Yes. And and I don't mean that negatively. It's more of just observation that it's like, oh, this sounds kind of like a very high class demo for another version, maybe for a Mike and the Mechanics album type of thing that was coming down the road, basically. So, yeah, that's my interaction with this. I don't pull this album out really to listen to it much. I can actually say the last time I pulled this album out to listen to before the for the podcast, and Catherine may remember this, was on September 22nd, 2020, <laughs> which was a day that after I had a hernia operation the day before and I was at home from work the next day, and I'm like, I'm going to do a live tweet of... Mike Rutherford is acting very strange. And I tweeted to Catherine saying, you've at least got to do this along with me. And you were like, yeah, sure. And a couple people, Al Melchior, I know, tweeted, and a couple other people who are fans of the podcast tweeted along. And I was able to pull up some of those tweets from, from back in 2020. For some reason, both Twitter and my Twitter archive that I downloaded when when a certain someone bought Twitter and people thought it was going to crash within days, didn't save all of those tweets. So Twitter is censoring my Mike Rutherford opinions, which uh, <laughs> is a little strange, but I will I will <laughs> reference those when when needed. So uh, for some of the songs out there. So that's kind of, I guess, where we're all at with this. I think we're ready to jump into this track by track. Any other general thoughts before we start this? Uh, only that I was, I'm probably the only person here that ever had it only on cassette. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
that is the classic 80s way to listen to an album so with your walkman i can yep. imagine i can imagine you now simon walking through the streets of london with this in your head just kind of bopping along and <laughs> you are and spotting the it. money yeah Excellent. that's exactly what it was like it'll bring back those good old times well thinking about those good old times and acting kind of acting very strange <laughs> in london album is one of those track uh, this this track is one of those pieces of music which really do handshake with the audience it's one of those tracks which goes this is the first track and this is what you're getting from now on in <laughs> yes and so if you don't like this first track there's a very good chance you're not going to like the rest of this album and it's not because uh, you know, we'll we'll get to the the the, the lead vocal element um, and the, as you say, the demo quality of, right. of all of it. Actually, I will ask one question: Does anybody know where this was recorded? At the farm. At the farm. So, yeah. So yeah. we're talking the earliest days of the farm. So we're talking around about the same time that they were sort of like doing, like their first real, like the me and Virgil sort of like. Uh, uh, Basically, recording Abacab and and the Mama album. Yeah, of uh, the Fugitive was recorded there, and I think, I uh, you know, I don't think Phil's stuff was recorded there. I think he did studios in London, but mm. you know, he might have done bits and bobs there. But but yeah, this is definitely mainly the farm and maybe a couple other places, probably for the horns or something like that. So. And I can really hear that on this mm. album and this track as well. I I think that there's um there's a lot of that early 80s police uh, kind of influence in here. You can hear that sort of almost like staccato kind of guitar work that would go on to become pretty much Mike Rutherford's signature sound during the 80s, that sort of like very sort of spiky rhythms. Although when he transitioned to the Mike and the Mechanics and the latter-day genesis stuff it became a lot more muted and a lot more delay driven almost like um dave gilmore kind of yeah. sort of delays you know use it or, or, or you know that was a very 80s things as well and i think this this song is is pretty much a a small taste of what the entire album you're about to listen to sounds like yeah 
I, I got the had an opposite sort of reaction. <laughs> but the first time I listened to it, I thought, yeah, this is this is a banging first song. It really fits. But towards the end, I started thinking, actually, why is this one being the lead? Because the vocals are so odd compared to the others. There are times where I feel like he's putting on a funny voice even sometimes. Which Especially makes the chorus, it not yes. Itself, yeah. So you're feeling like I've never heard you sing before. So I don't know if you're acting very strange or is this how you sing? <laughs> so you know, I thought, okay, maybe you need something to compare it to before we can really understand. Here's it. here's a question and I don't know whether or not any of you guys are actually aware of it. There is an element of this which maybe we want to talk about a little bit later on, which is at the stage of, of, of all of the members of Genesis recording careers, how much of record company fingers are on the backs of the artists at this point to produce something a little bit more commercial and a little bit more, what would you call revenue driving, mm. I suppose is the best way to describe it. Without knowing the details, I would think that after Phil's success with Face Value, probably Atlantic or Virgin, the record companies basically said, hey, you know, Phil just did a solo album and Mike and Tony, you've done solo albums before, but why don't you do something, you know, a little bit more accessible? And I could see both of them going, oh, okay, and doing their own versions of accessible at that point. Right. And they figured Phil can do it. Yeah. What, let's give it a go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and this is, I think Mike's version of that album of saying, I'm going to do the singing, I'm going to do this and, you know, jump into it. I like this song, but it does, it feels very bitty to me. Like there's mm. like, it's kind of s stitched together from a bunch of different pieces that maybe don't go together. But again, the title is acting very strange, so maybe that's a part of the nature of it. So, um. I, I think that Catherine has it on the nose, though that 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 it is. I wouldn't have chosen this to lead the album off. Yeah, I think there's probably better intros to this that that would get people into the album in a different way, and we could talk about that later on. What might be better? intro songs as they come up this might have been a, a better second track on the album than a first one mm -hmm. so i i certainly wouldn't put hideaway first but this oh it's be... it's got to be calypso that's that <laughs> get the b-side out there yes so, yeah so tom what did you think about this first track you're being you're you haven't heard this you've heard the myths and legends <laughs> about this album and you hear this he's definitely acting very strange yes. uh but with the first uh, the, the really only thing I knew about this, which I was kind of telling my friend about because he's a huge police fan, was that Stuart Copen plays on a couple tracks mm -hmm. here. And and that was the first, like Simon said, I, I kind of was thinking about the police when this came on. It's kind of got that reggae guitar feel to it. I think Copen played on two tracks. It was, yeah. do you know, was this one of them? I think so. I don't know. I tried to guess because I haven't been able to find like a confirmation. I'm pretty sure that halfway there, is definitely okay just from the and we'll talk about this later but it sounds the most like him and it's either then acting very strange or i don't want to know are my other hmm i think those are reasonable guesses i did i did note catherine i wrote in my notes after my initial listening was pushing voice like he sounded like he was trying to push it and be more like hardcore and heavier than like you know, not to meet his voice, but to meet the song. I don't know if that sounds right. I thought the pre-chorus keys reminded me a bit of Small Creeps Day. 
when the keys come in during that pre-chorus bit. I got to hand it to Mike. Almost every song on this album has a very catchy earworm chorus. Okay. That gets repeated 18,000 times. I know. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yes, but when you first get to it, like I'm like, I, I could almost every song, I'm like, okay, this is the bit. This is the bit that's going to stick in my head. And he was very good at that. I like the funky chorus. I wrote down, it reminded me of the computer whopper in war games, you know, going crazy. <laughs> sure. Like Simon said, Simon didn't really focus on the voice. But I think for people who are have heard the legend of Mike sucks on this album, his voice is terrible. That's what you're focusing on. So it's hard not to pull away from that. But I think once you do... There is some stuff there. This song will stick in my head. And I think that, you know, again, just talking about Mike's voice, and we'll probably talk about this throughout the album. I think, again, I don't know if I like the sound of his voice, but I do think he's singing in tune and in key. I don't think he's, I don't think he's bad in that way. I just don't know if his voice is a great singing voice. Technically, he's not making any errors. Right. Yeah. He's singing like it doesn't jar with the music but it doesn't really bring it to a higher level either that's kind of my main critique of his voice is that i just don't think he's a convincing singer if that that's a good way to put it i can't help but compare it to and this isn't a song that we're going to talk about today but that other one that he did for against all odds was it making a big mistake yeah his voice is so much better on that and and i think it's much more natural and it's smoother and it's almost peter-like actually quite similar but didn't he say that on this one he would drink whiskey yes he drank like half a bottle of whiskey before (laughs) before he sang and it just makes it kind of gruffer and a little bit more affected and i feel like it would be better if it were more natural like the other track but who knows not having heard his first attempts (laughs) without whiskey in his book he said he would try to drink enough remy martin to get that sound without getting too drunk to be able to record (laughs) <laughs> that's, a, that's a fine balance to strike, yes. I'm sure. So. I think the uh, the one thing that I take away from uh, Mike's vocal performance here, and I, you know, I, I think we've pretty much said that you know his vocals aren't good throughout this whole album, so I, I think it would be a little bit unkind for us to keep returning to it, but there was <laughs> one, there's one element which I, I always sticks with me with this song where the outro, if you will, of the, the chorus where there are sort of like lots of toms and he says acting very strange it is the nasal estuary estuary english accent that he uses the acting very strange yes (laughs) always sticks with me yeah yeah there are those little moments where i'm like oh he he does 
Like he knows how to sing. He's been doing backup in Genesis for 10 years. And, you know, so it's like, he's not, he couldn't have listened back to this and gone, oh, this is either, this is horrible or this is the best thing ever. It's what he wanted from this recording. And it's not, the, I one of my notes is that it's not the voice I would have expected from Mike Rutherford. Mm. So, but I think again, you know, maybe going against expectations, that's kind of the, the interesting thing. And so this is the introduction to trying to listen to this with a clear mind and kind of say like, I know the reputation of this album. Let me try to put that aside and just listen to it as, is this good? Do I like it or not? And this is a track that did after my multiple listens did stick in my head a bit, you know, especially that kind of pre-chorus bit and kind of the, the choppiness of the vocals. So whether it should have been the first track or not, it did stick in my head and it did kind of make a home there for better or worse. It's, it's in there. We will be, I'm sure talking about the voice quality is a little bit here and there, but I think we got most of it out of our system. Yes, <laughs> yes. exactly. Yes, uh, yes we, we don't want to beat the dead horse with it too much. Let's just take that as red, shall yes, we? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so we'll make specific comments about vocals if we need to, but we'll leave it at there. So cool. So I think we can now move on and have a day to remember. <laughs> say that this is the most 80s genesis of all of the songs on the album for me it, it's got that sort of like tony banksy sound designy keyboard sort of like sitting in the back oh yeah i've got a sampler you know or that, <laughs> yeah. that, that that kind of thing and it's also it reminds me in some strange way of silver rainbow okay, okay. Ooh, yeah. um, and i don't know why it, it's not it doesn't really sound like it but there's a vibe about this track I actually said it, I thought it was very mama-ish in some ways. I don't know. What, and there's that, yeah. With the drum loop or whatever it was. It's, it's a Lynn drum machine yeah. Isn't yeah. It on this. Yeah. I made a side comment here that it was it was during this track when I actually thought for the first time, I might actually like this album. It's a track that just did get into my head a little bit. So it's it's something that you know had a good feel to it. And that's oftentimes what 
what I'm trying to get away, take away from the music is that, you know, how does it both make me feel? And does the track itself have an overall good feel? Like it's trying to be something here. I'm not sure what it's trying to be, <laughs> but it is, I, Simon, much like you, I said, it's very eighties. Like this is a track that again, with the production of it and, and the looping of things and, and the sound of it, I was like, this is early eighties and it's prime. In a way, I almost felt like this one should have been the lead. Maybe it's too jarring, that alarm sound at the beginning. <laughs> but once it actually moves into the body of the song, I feel like, okay, here we are. This is what the album's going to be like. Yes. This, yeah. this is this grew on me the more I listened to it. My, my initial notes, I put Gabriel, a voice a bit like Anthony Phillips. Gabriel-like effects. He really, you know, Mike really likes the synth effects. And I put that it really got better toward the end when he kept on getting into the part that you would repeat that day. You remember that day you can hide like that repeated chorus. I got to like the early part of the song better the more I listened to it. Okay. This is definitely one of the strongest songs on the album, but it was also, but <laughs> it was, the <laughs> and here's your big, but. <laughs> right. it was the first sign. Well, actually, it was basically the first time and then looking back to the first song that I could see that he likes to repeat the chorus over and over again until the fade out. Yep. And then as each song that followed liked to do the same thing, I was hoping for, I think at least all, you know, every song on the first side ends with a fade out. I think a couple of them could have dealt with like a hard stop, like Maxine could have at least, but then I was like, all right, it seems like, as you would say, this is a great high class demo. Like the first three quarters of the song are good, and then he's like, "I'll just repeat it, repeat and yeah. put the faders down." Yeah. I think what you've found here is the musical equivalent of the of the other eighties theme in uh, you know, especially from American cinema, which is the ending of film on a freeze frame, <laughs> and, uh, and and the whole thing of like you know. <laughs> really from the late 70s all the way through to the almost the early 90s fade outs were everywhere right whether it was for radio or whether it was just that they didn't have an ending for a song and it was just easier to fade it out you know it's it is something that was prevalent in the era and it's not it's, it's funny it's not something i think about until somebody points it out and then i'm like oh yeah there's there's the fade outs or because of this album where it ends on choruses a lot and it's kind of going into the distance and it's like, yeah, this could have faded out maybe a minute earlier, <laughs> but then you'd have, this is already a short album at 38 minutes or so. I was going to say, yeah. what do you want it? 25 minute. <laughs> exactly. Just, just give me one side of vinyl and then I don't even have to flip it over at this point. I, yeah. I, I overall like, I like this song. I find this appealing in its quirkiness at this point. And I think that might be my verdict for as we move forward, but it's <laughs> with some probably exceptions, but you know, it's, it's something that was catchy in its own way. And I enjoy it. I find it kind of interesting lyrically too. I was trying to go back this morning and thinking about the topics of all of the songs. And there's a lot of love 
and you know loss and pursuit of women but there's this one and you know couldn't get arrested or it seemed to be about like witnessing crimes or wanting to commit crimes and it makes me wonder what's going through mike's head at the time it also reminded me of that um that old rumor about you know phil witnessing somebody drowning and not yes. doing anything about it so what I, did mike see on this right. day to remember maybe mike is the one who actually witnessed uh things <laughs> and either chose to do or not do anything about it so it's uh, conflating stories here that is actually one thing i wish that and i probably could have looked online for this I would have loved for this album to have a lyric sheet to it, which it didn't have in the versions that I had, both CD and vinyl, because, yeah, I'm going to comment on his voice here, it was sometimes a little difficult to understand what he was singing or kind of really get keep track of what he was talking about. So, I don't think that has much to do with uh, his singing voice. I think that has to probably more to do with the Remy Martin. Yes. That <laughs> or the production choices around, around things with that. So I would like to know more about the subject of these albums because Mike was, was, and is always has always been a really solid lyric writer. Yeah. Um, he's very consistent with things. And so both, you know, with Genesis, when he would write lyrics for the mechanics or for his solo albums, he always seemed to have some, something to say or some narrative, you know, whether it was something as simple and straightforward as follow you, follow me, or more of a story type of song or something like Snowman off of, uh, and then there were three, you know, Snowbound, uh, where it was, had a feel to it, but you'd still get that from the lyrics. I would have. Or Water of the Skies. Yeah. So definitely, you know, that's a, that's a story and a feel song right there. I, w- I would like to know more of these lyrics and I'm sure they're online. I, I just haven't gone digging around for them. They are. So. Yeah. You can, by now in this technology age, if, if you can't find acting very strange lyrics, you're not looking hard enough. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I just didn't even look at all. So that was, that's on me as a, as a bad podcaster. So we'll now move on to a song. I think it's called Maxine. But you might want to correct me on that. It it might be. And I, I just have to add that the transition from A Day to Remember to Maxine made me laugh out loud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I did wonder if that yeah was from the end of the Day to Remember or the beginning of Maxine. At least on the CD, it's the beginning of Maxine. Oh, on the album, I just ran together and it just it literally made me laugh out loud because I wasn't expecting <laughs> it. Do you want to give us a yeah? Yeah. yeah!
this is, and I mean this in the most positive way, this is the big dumb rock track on the album. <laughs> and it was played by the Mechanics live on their first tour. Paul Young sang the hell out of it. And it is just one of these songs that I think even Mike does a pretty good job with it. But it is, it is designed to be a live anthemic radio rock song. And it works on that level. Anthemic, it, it reminds me of Word of Mouth. Okay. And that's a very okay, anthemic yeah. song that gets the crowd singing and like a stomper. And how can you not sing along to this song? It, it, it's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely one of those sort of, it's a drinking song almost, you know? <laughs> yeah. And and welcome to the 80s. There is a sax in here. So you get that. Funnily enough, actually, it's uh, Gary Barnacle, who I think is also featured with Level 42 as well. Right. I, I knew he was from another band. I just honestly couldn't remember what it was from, but I've seen his name around. And so I know he's kind of a, a well-known, you know, musician sax player with that. So I liked the sax in it. It was actually, again, kind of made me laugh in a good way when it was there. And one of my notes was, I think the song is about Maxine, but, you know, <laughs> and, and Daryl Sturmer is on this album. Is that him at the end of this track playing kind of the faster guitar? I think so. That was my guess anyways. That was honestly, you know, I'll have to check my notes again. That might've been the only place where I was able to really identify a, a is this Daryl type of thing. The rest of it felt more like Mike or there's a, there's another guitarist, uh, John Alexander, who I honestly have not heard of before, who, you know, obviously did some guitars on the album, but I don't know what. So, you know, that's, I, I wish there were track by track credits for this album on the, on the LP, but alas, there is not. This, this could have been a bigger hit uh, as I said, if you listen to the Paul Young version. But it was 39 in Canada, right? Or was that in England? I forget <laughs> it could where. have gone to 37. Mission accomplished. It is a good, fun tune. And the way Paul Young sings it, he does it a lot of justice. It could have been you know, maybe a, a bigger mechanic song if he had saved it for them. saxophone it felt a bit buried but i did i did notice it as well and i thought the drum fill seemed very collins like yes there's a there's a big phil collins feel to those drum fills in there if only he could have gotten phil on the track you know <laughs> that could have been a could have been a nice mix of 
of crossover with things like that. So, but they actually would, they never really guessed it on each other's solo albums that I can think of. I mean, Phil on the three of them, Phil, Mike and Tony, Phil, Mike and Tony, obviously Phil did Peter's things and some, and Mike and Ant worked together all the time. But in this era, it was very clear who was that there wasn't that type of crossover happening. I think they just needed a break. Like this was their like, okay, I'm doing Genesis. I'm doing my solo stuff. I'm doing Genesis. And they were trying to like, just mentally, they probably needed that break where like, I see this guy all the time every day for nine hours in the studio. (laughs) Right. I don't want to see you again for five months. Exactly. Let's (laughs) take a break from each other. There was also, I remember reading or hearing this in, in an interview and I forget which of the three it was with, but I think that it might've been Tony who said that Phil wanted on the mama album wanted Mike and Tony to sing a song each. I kind of, I always have thought that Tony probably would have sang silver rainbow. It's like, but I wonder if we can take this moment to say, what could Mike have sung on the mama album? It's going to get better. Ooh. All right. Oh yeah. I could see that. I think also like Phil sings the hell out of uh, taking it all too hard, but I know I'm pretty sure that's that's a a Mike lyric also. Mm. But I don't know if Mike would have been able to deliver that the way that that Phil does. Although, again, you know, with with uh, Catherine was talking about the the track from the Against All Odds soundtrack, if he was singing it not in this voice, but in a, in a different voice, maybe he could have carried that off. Anyway, just a little sidebar in the middle of Maxine there, which I will say had a dirty little guitar solo in the middle of it that I think was it was either Mike or the, or the mysterious John Alexander. So, uh, but I did enjoy the, that guitar solo. Oh, Daryl. Or yes. Daryl. Yeah. It could have been. Yeah. It's, yeah. but that one at the end felt more Daryl-ish to me, but yeah, but he, Daryl can play probably most in any style, just being the session musician that he is. So. Yeah. Sorry, I Karen. I, I tripped you up there. I apologize. Karen. Who's yeah. that? Oh, Kat- <laughs> Sorry, um, I didn't hear that. So I said you called me Karen. Oh, did I? <laughs> I, put, I, I, did, I was actually trying to say Catherine, but maybe it was just like my, my middle-aged mouth has just fallen <laughs> over the... Uh... You've had the half bottle of Remy Martin. Yeah, right? that's exactly... <laughs> Sorry about that. No, and that even kind of segues well into my point that I was going to make about this. Is I, I, lyrically, there are some things going on here that I, I think highlight something that Mike has said when talking about having to write lyrics for this album. Um, I listened to an interview recently where he was talking about having to, you know, write for yourself and actually sing it really sort of highlights that vocal phrasing and how difficult it can be. And there are some times where I think he kind of trips up or he doesn't give himself enough room in a phrase to get the words in, like in acting very strange, he's got that in a little while, which you feel like that (laughs) it doesn't quite work. And it happens here a lot too. There's one phrase that I had to look up the lyrics because I could not figure out what he was saying. And it's in your fatefully stunning way at one point. And it's just, it's so the stresses are on the wrong syllables for the whole thing that I feel like, Oh no, (laughs) that's probably (laughs) not quite right. That is a mouthful to try to sing there. (laughs) But I think you're right. I think that's actually emblematic of the rushed feeling this entire album possesses. I I think Tom was talking about earlier on about how this album felt thrown together 
a little bit and 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 i i agree i think that there was there might have been some commercial pressures on it as well but i i do think catherine you you've you've hit on something which i think is maybe often overlooked when people say this this is a bad album i also think this is actually a very rushed album but i think it was also uh, uh, emblematic of the times of the lo-fi aesthetic that a lot of people were trying to emulate now Uh, we're talking that that sort of post-punk new wave era where everything needed to feel as though it was live in a room and I agree with you. I think some of the the word choices and the, the the stresses for the vocals are to not put a pun, but are very strange. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Simon! <laughs> it also feels like there's maybe some like lyrical revisions that don't quite work. Like when that under an assumed fame what's that i googled it and the only thing that came up was this album <laughs> so <laughs> clearly right, he made yeah. that up but it felt when like, you're you just know, going for the rhyme at that point you know it's, well i feel like he probably did originally write under an assumed name right and then wrote the next bit and thought oh i have to go back and change that Ugh, same right. kind of works yeah and, sure yeah who's gonna listen that closely to this anyway <laughs> 30 years from now people will do a podcast about this and try 40 to, yeah plus you know. can i also just say this might be this podcast the most anyone has ever talked sustained <laughs> about this album yeah it, we had that i remember with one of the other uh albums that we talked about it was like probably more since this has come out this will be the longest sustained conversation that has happened about this this music so it's probably the fugitive yeah probably was the fugitive so it sounds and of this era so of the early 80s genesis stuff so anyway with maxine kind of leading to a conclusion we're now at the halfway point of the album so we're halfway there oh god oh Oh, the segues of joy This again, I think, out of all of the tracks, is the most policey sounding one. I mean, ob- and I do think that Stuart Copeland is on drums. Yeah. On yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, that sounds unmistakably like Stuart playing it in the background. But I think that it's also, I mean, this is the last track supposedly on side one. Um, and I say side one now that you know vinyl's coming back. We're all starting to, <laughs> it's starting to come back into that sort of like almost um, current parlance again. But I think that this album is the, uh, and this track is one of the, the, the tracks which I think sound the least like anything he's ever done. Um, it sounds the most, I think it's the most derivative work on the album. It sounds to be like a, a conglomeration of other people's music, which he's playing. 
and I'm not saying that it's a bad song as a result of that. I'm just saying you get used to the idea of Mike Rutherford having his own style and his own sound. You know, he's been honing it for years and this sounds nothing like him. Yeah. I, one of my notes was it, this would be better with a different arrangement. And this was also played live by Mike and the Mechanics on that first tour. And it was a pretty solid version. I listened to it this morning and, you know, I, I liked generally how it sounded. Talking lyrically, I liked that he worked kind of halfway there into there and kind of or half-hearted into the lyric, like kind of taking this half idea and kind oh. of like, oh, half-hearted. What did you I, 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 do? I feel it so I farted. <laughs> oh, that makes much more sense. Half-hearted. That's right. Okay. Mike was going a very different direction with the lyric. There, so. There's that vocal phrasing problem. Also. Yeah. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Got it's it. because he's been eating so many bundles of fibers. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have those bundles of fibers in your diet when you're this age. But I did another police-like song. Yep. As yep. Simon said, very catchy chorus. I did like the slowdown and the tempo change. Mm. And then the sax comes in, I thought, a lot better than the previous song. I enjoyed the sax on this track. The funny thing about the song that Mike says in the in his book is that Eddie Van Halen liked this song and it, it led Eddie Van Halen to want to work with Mike. And I think they actually got together in the studio uh, a few times, but it was way too late in Mike's daily schedule. Like I said, he liked to work at like 2 a.m. morning or something. Yes. And that, that wasn't cutting it for Mike. So nothing came of those, but that was a very, you know, of all the songs on this that EVH is like, I want that one. I like wow. that. Wow. I'm just, I again, it kind of amazes me that he heard it, you know, yeah. that's, uh, but we, I think we know that he was a Gen- Van Halen was a Genesis fan. And so he might've been somebody who was like, Oh, I want to hear the new Mike Rutherford album. And when you have that opportunity to work with someone, why not? And there was a music video for this one too. It's the only one for which there was a <laughs> What's the, opera I music was, video. There's in a train. I'll have to look it's a very bizarre chasing a woman through the tube and there's like yeah. a giant fruit and nut bar or something like he goes <laughs> into a vending machine and it's very <laughs> my memory of videos with this and i have not tried to confirm it was that i thought that there was a video for acting very strange itself i've but, never seen one because my memory and again i i'm gonna say that i have not verified this was that on the the Invisible Touch MTV tour documentary that they did when they had little bits of saying, and, you know, Phil obviously had solo success and Mike and Tony did too, or Mike and Tony put out solo albums. And I, my vague memory is that there's Mike in a kind of raincoat doing the acting very strange chorus, but I could be misremembering it. Catherine does I, not believe me. I, I didn't think. see anything. Oh, I'm not on saying it. I don't believe you. I'm, my <laughs> interest I'm, has been and peaked, I'm, actually. And I am not sure myself. And I, in the prep for this, I thought, oh, I should look on YouTube and see if this is out there. <laughs> She's back. That's right. Maxine, Maxine, we can't get rid of her. That's right. But I thought about trying to 
dig up that memory and be like, am I right about this? But maybe it was a halfway there video that they played a bit of. I, I'm looking at the halfway there video as we speak. Oh my, okay. Look at that. <laughs> it's very interesting. It's very 80s. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Mike said in his book that his mom loves it because he's basically cameras on him the whole time, pretty much. <laughs> That's so sweet. <laughs> I actually, you know, it's funny. I did not recall that that Mike talked about this as much in detail in his book as you're saying, Tom, this album. Uh, there's only like two paragraphs about this album. Again, more than anyone has written about this <laughs> album in, in decades. But... And possibly more than he wanted to say. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and here's something which um, I, I'd like to sort of, uh, I'd like to redress that balance because I, I think there's a lot of crap that's been said about this album. It has to be seen in context of both the time and his career. Mm-hmm. And once you you listen to this album with those two, I don't know what you call goalposts placed down, it's nowhere near as a bad an album, as, you know, as, as, as a lot of people would like to think. I think there's a uh, there's no way that you can you can say that this is a great album. And I can see why a lot of people make the case for it being the worst solo album. But everybody is conscious of it. Everybody, I put a, yes. a, a Facebook post out uh, about this album and the number of responses that I got back mm-hmm. was astonishing. Well, you know, some people saying they hated it. Some people said they'd heard of it. Some people said they'd heard the album, but had, you know, there was a whole gamut. I think you of, got over a hundred comments. Wow. Uh, it, it just goes to show that, that you know, it's, it's, it's part of the, of the world. It shouldn't just be thrown up into an attic like an ugly child, you know, like a, a, an ugly Victorian child. What, are you, what, what, what household are you living in? <laughs> I, I come from England. Shame was a big part of the economy there. Exactly. Were, you, were you that kid, Simon? That's right. No, no. I, as I said, if, if anything, I'm the champion of this album. This is right. this is one of those albums which is is very much a a positive holds a positive place yeah. in my in my my growing up. Yeah. I meant, were you that child kept in the attic? Oh well, everybody <laughs> had an attic. They were sooner or later they were thrown into back in England, right? <laughs> and some kids are still up there. So. <laughs> my, my my theory about this is almost put on par when people talk about solo albums to, as the fugitive is right but i think the main difference it's the album's achilles heel is the cover yeah. i think the reason that people for lack of a, of a better word shit on this album so much is because while tony's has some good stuff on it and the singing is adequate same with mike there's good, some good stuff on it the singing's okay it's the cover. I think that because it's a much worse cover, in my opinion, than the fugitive, that people automatically going into it going, Oh, what, what is, what is this? So when you're just comparing the two, they, they hold this one in a lower regard just because of that cover. That's my theory. Yeah. Can I, can I interject though, that there was, there's, there's a very important thing that's happening here, both musically and stylistically with Genesis at this point. Genesis up until this point had been a faceless act in a, in a lot of right. ways. Um, and I'm not talking specifically about, you know, they had a very, two very strong front men, but I'm talking their presence as an album. Mm-hmm. They hardly ever appear on their album covers. They want the music to be front and center. And we are hitting a moment in all of their careers where the record companies are realizing that 
their brand is is, is as important as their music yeah, and personality is selling yeah, too. These are the first tentative steps, and of course, they're going to be fumbling steps as well. You know, and what they're doing, what you're seeing here in 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 albums like The Fugitive and uh, and Acting Very Strange, are experiments in expression mm -hmm. you know yeah. these are these are people who are who are trying to basically turn the page from almost 10 years of one way of working it's definitely that 70s into the 80s transition this is you know from yeah. from 79 to 82 83 there was the artists who continued to work and continued to be successful were all trying to figure out their next steps after the 70s and this is one of way one of might's way of doing it and now that we're we're you know out of that time period we can see that in that context now that is harder to see from back in the day when you're able to see this album in its historical context, it makes a bit more sense than maybe people at the time listening to it and going, oh, where, where, what, what's going on here? It's all connected. You can't see, you know, and that's one of the worst parts of having an album is that you can, the tendency is to look at it in isolation. Right. And it's all interlinked. Yeah. Yeah, it's all part of a tapestry with this. So, so Tom, at this midpoint of the album, on your first listen, what were you thinking? What's kind of your, you know, where were you at with this album as this side one concluded? It was kind of like uh, what I expected. I was agreeing with people who had heard his singing is not that great, but I did feel that there was enough to go back and listen to the first side again without going to side two okay. first. I kind of wanted to concentrate on that and... Yeah, as there were some catchy choruses. There were some really interesting sounds that he was using. I would probably put this on, you know, every so often. But yeah, I was glad, like I said earlier, I wish I'd put it on earlier because there were some things that I enjoyed about this first side. All right. So as we draw to the conclusion of side one, we're now going to segue into our viewer mail segment. So here we go. And then something spoke, and this is what it said to me. You got mail, baby, yeah. This, as Sami was saying, people had a lot to say about this album. <laughs> I tried to get a mix of good and bad. Uh, it might skew more in one direction, as, as you'll hear. But I just took around maybe uh, half a dozen or so comments, some Mostly, they made me laugh, so that's that's why they they made right. my list. <laughs> and I've got some Twitter, I've got some Twitter comments here too that I'll add after the the Facebook ones right. that you grabbed. So. And I have some comments from the Animal Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> Frank Lopez says, "You don't know how difficult it was to pick one favorite from this bag of poo." <laughs> oh. No, just no. I'd rather listen to Who Done It on an infinite loop. That sounds pretty All good right. too. So. so that's nitpicking, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> uh, William Stewart Rowett said, "That's a bit like asking which flavor enema you would like best." <laughs> Any person that wants to taste an enema is. <laughs> I will. I will add in here. So just to break up this is that Martin Quibble on Twitter said, guys, why are you doing this to me? I haven't listened listened to this album in years. <laughs> we did we didn't flip this on people, but it was uh, their Kevin, choice to listen. So. It was their choice. No one's forced. Uh, Kevin Hagerman oppositely said, I unapologetically love this whole album. Rutherford is my favorite writer in Genesis. 
There, there you we know. go. Good uh, man. Which, yep. And I, I was thinking earlier, you know how Tony Smith says that you could replace anybody in Genesis except for Tony Banks. I think if Mike had left at any point in the late 70s, early 80s, you would have missed his presence. Yes. In Genesis's music. Yeah. So there is something that he brings that, you know, they all bring to it, which makes Genesis Genesis apart from their solo stuff. Yeah. I, I want to add that on Twitter, AJ, uh, AJ Chaparro says, I effing love this album. Seriously. <laughs> so there, again, there are people who, you know, enjoy this. It just goes to, sorry to interrupt. It just goes to show that um, your opinions are entirely independent of, of the art, which is, you know, which is acting upon it. And I think that uh, you, you have to just understand that for so much of music, you have to chart your own path and damn Ooh. the rest of people. Exactly. I, I, I like Michael Paul King's comment here from Twitter. Someone should have arrested Rutherford before he made this album, but apparently they couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice bit of foreshadowing there, by the yes. way. Uh, Warren Vlas uh, says, my choice is acting very strange, but I have to say this, the album is very constrained, especially his voice where whatever the engineer used to alter his voice should be put behind a barn and blown up. <laughs> I would have, I would have him sing naturally and have the music adjust to his voice. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Alex Talander, another friend of the show. Uh, there's too much yelling in this album. Mike's yelling. The guitar's yelling. The, sax the saxophone's yelling. I'm reminded of Mike's biography, well, autobiography, where his dad basically said, please don't sing again. <laughs> Wow, that's even your dad saying like, that's a little rough. It's funny because you kind of think of Mike as being quite soft-spoken. I know he isn't, but in, in interviews and things, you just get more of that reserved feeling, which is so surprising then when you hear Maxine shouted at you <laughs> 35 <laughs> times. Yes. I like Chris, no last name, but this was very good. That's not what he said. I'm saying his review was very yes. good. Uh, Rutherford's voice is aggressively annoying. When I'd read that his vocals weren't great, I had no idea that they were like this. I mean, some death metal vocalists are comically in your face. Rutherford's vocals are more like a fly or a mosquito you swat away with your hands or some hidden pebble in a shoe. <laughs> Just a reminder that there's something there and difficult to get rid of. Or a wind machine set in your face where all you have are your hands to block its force. <laughs> that's, that's almost poetry right there. That so. is poetry. That was, I, th I think that was what written on the back of the album. I think so. Point, yeah. I would love to see the poll press code quotes for the posters that Simon saw around London. We can go retroactively put these in there. Uh, the last I have is from Gary Marsh, or I think this was commented on Simon's post. He said, bugger the music, the act of pairing a Panama with a sleeveless gym shirt. <laughs> Doom the album from the start. I will say on Twitter, I've got at least one or two more here. Uh, Elias of Holmesdale says, I bought it on vinyl when it was released. I think I've only played it once. I hope you played it one or two more times since here. So I do, I do want to say, I don't think I did this on purpose, but I actually had a hat much like Mike Rutherford's on the uh, cover. There. <laughs> I know that hat. Yes, I, I have it around somewhere, but uh, I think it's it's lost to time now. But it was it was a uh, it was a nice hat that I had. Anyway, I, I appreciated well, that at the time. So. Given that this was an early '80s album, I think we're just lucky that. Mike wasn't lying on his side, propped up on his elbow, 
like many <laughs> 80s men were on their album covers. Thriller. I think a lot of Richie's right. on one like that. Yeah. I, I did an impromptu survey in my house among the, the women here. I, I showed them the cover and I said, well, what do you think? And my 12-year-old just gave a thumbs down. Okay. Kind of like the king in History of the World Part yes. two, Part 1. My wife said, oh, he's he's pretty good looking. He looks pretty hot. He's got like Bradley Cooper thing going on. I was like, hmm, interesting. To me, he always looked like the teenager whose mom dressed him and he has to pose for a picture. <laughs> <laughs> like that look on his face, like, why'd you make me wear this? <laughs> I think uh, if I remember correctly, um, his wife uh, was part of the uh, the team that organized this photo shoot. Yeah, yes, yeah. it was her idea, the aesthetic. <laughs> Maybe it was just a case of she wanted to dress him up in stuff that she liked. Yeah. That works. Well, this was kind of his sportswear phase. There are some, uh, you know, photos of him on stage where he's wearing those really, really tiny shorts and like a sports top. (laughs) (laughs) He he did wear this outfit on Genesis tour. I think on the Three Size Live time, Three Size Live tour, you can see footage of him wearing the Sumo All-Star shirt. So he he must have just had an affinity for this. It was like that blazer he would constantly wear later in that he wore in a much tour yeah. on the invisible touch video and on a Mike and the mechanics performance he used to wear that jacket so he once and and tony's sweatshirt yeah tony also had a sweatshirt that he used to constantly wear so once they pick an outfit that they like yeah everybody has a look yes, yes. yeah tony banks has i always remember the uh the rugby shirt period <laughs> of tony banks as well so I think that with that, we've done our viewer mail here. Thank you all for writing Thank in you, and yeah. talking about things. You know, it's, it made us laugh. And we know that, you know, it's easy to talk about, you know, selling England by the pound or Invisible Touch or these type of albums that have huge fan bases. But to kind of pull an album out like this and get some real gem comments is always uh, always a good time. So thank you all for listening and for tolerating us choosing an album like this to talk about. So. I think it on sheer entertainment value alone, yes. uh, it's worth talking about for the simple reason that it does elicit a strong reaction from almost everybody that's heard it. Yeah, I think so. So, so with that, you know, we have to kind of segue into side two of this album where we really have to consider the question, who's fooling who? <laughs>
So I voted for, we'll talk about this at the poll. I voted for a different track, but when I was listening to this album for the, the last time before recording today, I really kind of thought maybe I should have voted for this song. Like this mm. song really got me going when I was listening to it today. You know, it has, you know, the sax in it. There's a good guitar solo. It has, it does have the opening guitar chords that kind of catch you. It just really kind of worked for me today. I was really happy with this song listening to it. And it's one that I'm kind of amazed that the mechanics didn't play this live on their first tour because it, to me, it feels such like a live song that would really get the crowd going. They would have done, they would have done it well. Exactly. I almost feel like you can hear Paul Young too in the background, like as the, mm. some of the backing vocals. It's yeah. I think this is the track which most demonstrates what I think is the one influence which no one ever really ascribes to Mike Rutherford, and that's Pete Townsend. Mm, sure. I mm. think you know over and above the sort of like you know who is fooling who and all that, uh, the lyrical elements. There's always been that sort of like who bombast lurking at the end of Mike Rutherford's fingers. And while he doesn't always get to express it, it's his solo album. Why not pull out those big power chords? It had a very those it had a very queen feeling in the beginning, those those chords that he was he was strumming on. And again, this was my initial reaction. I put I got that same feeling that I do when I sometimes hear rush songs where I'm enjoying it and then the vocals come in and it kind of takes me away from it. But I, again, it's a very catchy chorus. I put trumpet here. Yep. Where I think it's, it, and someone is actually credited yes. with playing the trumpet. So I, you know, these weren't the faux horns that I, I usually don't like. If I, if I may interrupt, uh, I, I hear what you say about those faux trumpet sounds. Stacey uh, has a, a word for them, which is the daytime TV brass. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to forever call them that. And I think that it sounded a bit like Stuart Copeland on drums, at least in the middle of this song. There might have been, you know, some different different drummers mixed into the same track, too. But I felt like he might have been on this song also. We'll have to write to him and ask. I know. <laughs> see, if, see if he even remembers at this point. I think I think the early 80s were a bit of a blur for Mr. Copeland to time. My biggest comment about this one was no fade out. Hooray. <laughs> mm, yes. I, I wrote first song to come to a finish. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I said that, you know, it was that there were long outros on these songs, which this one had. And I just had the word good with an exclamation point after that, my last note. Like, I did really kind of enjoy this one. It's another, uh, if, if you, you know, it, it's all relative, but this is another strong song on the album. Yeah, exactly. How do we feel about the self-awareness or not of the the subject matter? The hmm. Who's fooling who? You know, I can be a singer. <laughs> I, I think one of the things that uh, you, you know it was mentioned before that that he he still has a, a fairly strong lyrical presence on this album right. and uh, I, I don't know there's an element for me whenever I listen to this track especially back during the day where the song sort of like kind of alludes to that imposter syndrome like uh, you know I'm here I am at the top of the pile and I don't deserve to be here kind of vibe about it it's not necessarily what the song's about but that was certainly back in the day when i was listening to it as a young lad that was what i kind of took away from this song as regard its meaning yeah i think that you take 
a chorus and a, and a title like who's fooling who and you kind of know what it's about right away it's it is that imposter syndrome that self-doubt am i pulling one over on people am i fooling you with what i'm doing who's fooling who are you fooling me am i fooling you i think that i liked that ambiguity to a title like, like this and a song like this and just with this album overall, I wish it was surrounded by better stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is for me. This is the uh, anything she does of, <laughs> of this album. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. Cool. Do we know who Flory Palmer is? And because that's a co-writing on this one, and halfway there, I think. I I did no research on it, but I don't know. I and I assume that you haven't. So. Oh have to find these people they'd, they'd be a good interview for your website you can figure out you know <laughs> how they did that I, I would love to know more about the writing process for this album too i feel like hideaway is a bit of an older song it feels more like classic 70s early 80s rutherford but the rest of them feel of their time of yeah that early 80s but you never know were any of these tracks you know were there versions of them from the mid 70s that have been lying around for a while or yeah. from even the Small Creeps Day era. I, I feel like Hideaway could have fit right on Small Creeps Day. Well, the next track on the album, we were worried about kind of people getting taken away and Mike obviously couldn't get arrested. <laughs> I think you should be arrested, Mike. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. Should, I think you should be put in a penitentiary. Oh. oh. <laughs> How do I fit all this in before the song? <laughs> one that i wrote i hated this or not hated but i really didn't like this song going in to my listens for this podcast but i came out of it liking it more all right and i think it's just because i didn't really even appreciate or notice that little funky bit i was just so bothered by the chorus (laughs) it made me want to switch off entirely but i really appreciate that that funk that this track has much like I said with Acting Very Strange itself, this is 
this is a bit of a bitty track. Like it's, I don't know if everything fits together quite well. I, I weirdly like it. Again, this is another one that the chorus would get stuck in my head listening to it, which is not always a great thing. But I really did enjoy this. I thought that this was fun. And I think the verses are the most interesting thing about this song. I think there's that quirkiness and the, the bass is a little bit weird. I think that somebody on, I probably should have found this on Twitter, said that this was almost like like Mike's version of We Can't, I Can't Dance, you know, <laughs> having that type of song to it. But, you know. I will not have people putting this song in the same vein as I Can't Dance. <laughs> this is a much better, this is a much better song. Wow. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> you. I like that you like this. How dare you malign couldn't get arrested. <laughs> I, for me, this song is the musical equivalent of the guy that won't <laughs> shut up next to you at the movie theater. Oh, <laughs> wow. Whereas I also said in my notes, I just noticed this too, that I said one of my very early listens to this album when I first got it probably on CD, I thought that Mike actually sounded kind of Gabriel-ish at times. And I think it might have been in the in some of the verses of this track. And I said, this almost feels like maybe with the loopiness of it, feels a bit like Mike's Games Without Frontiers. That's uh, a bold statement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Now I have to say you can't malign Games Without Frontiers <laughs> by comparing it to this song. It's weird. Uh, one of my notes was it's weirdly catchy. And I just kind of find that that this track, it, it worked for me in some ways that I did not expect it to. As much as the chorus being repeated ad infinitum at the end was a little bit of a pain, this was this was fun. And I will say this is I mentioned my little tweet along that we did back in 2020 for this. And this is the first track where my comments actually uh, I, I was able to dig up my comments. And I said, I, if I remember correctly, the chorus of this is repeated about 18 million times, right? Yes, and um just under exactly so and, and kate at the time you did say the this is the only one you actively don't like um it, it was for that very reason it's just the chorus it yeah. gets in your head in a way that's not nice <laughs> not <good. laughs> i am i am with you 100 percent on that it's, a, it's an earworm that drills into your brain <laughs> yeah. it's not the positive earworm so oh, i it, it was very early 80s reminiscent of like a like a post-punk i put like an elvis costello kind of song or even like a, something that the clash would do okay oh, whatever of- you're smoking i want it sent to my house immediately <laughs> if the clash did it it would be a very politically aware track you know they couldn't get arrested you know it'd be kind of that edgy on the streets type of thing i think we're pushing this into areas where this bi- this song has no business being <laughs> So this is interesting because you were both Catherine and Simon are the very pro Mike Rutherford people here, but you both really don't like this song. No, I, I'm not. Yeah. A, no, no. Let's let's blame it on Belote. That's the, uh, <laughs> the the other writer on this on this song or Belote, however it's pronounced. We can say it's not Mike's fault; it's the other person's fault. So no, I don't. I don't want to malign. It's just it it, it just draws a great big nope from me. All right, fair enough. Well, with that, we should probably, you know, figure out (laughs) if I don't want to know.
I can tell you, I can tell you right now for this this song, this is the most Gabriel-esque of the, all of the tracks. Okay, I definitely get that vibe off the the sort of backing vocals. It might not necessarily sound particularly sort of like Gabriel-esque, but they're, I mean, you know, no, nothing. They don't, you know, grow up in a vacuum. They've all influenced one another, right. and for some reason, I don't know whether or not it, it's that post Phil Collins. A first solo album, which was a huge smash hit, and Peter Gabriel three, which which really cemented Peter Gabriel, in my opinion, as a solo artist, especially back in the UK when he when he scored some big hits from that album. I think you know, I think the each member of of uh, of Genesis they listen to one another. Mm-hmm. You know, they hear what's what you know what's working and what isn't working, and there is a Gabriel vibe about this track to me, at least. Okay. Just off by one track from what I said, so maybe it's uh, leading into there. <laughs> I I thought that this I I kind of one of my notes, my first note was that it felt like it was an actual Mike Rutherford guitar riff that kind of started off the song and kind of kicked in there. That felt very Rutherfordy, and I I said it was a Calypso vibe at the start, even before I re- remembered. And I think maybe from your comment when we were texting about this, that Calypso is a B side on this album. And so maybe they were, you know, a similar vibe to them at that point. But, you know, I, I actually didn't have a lot of notes about this, but this was also another one that the, the mechanics played live. Ask all the questions, answer all the lies. Many men have told me that you wouldn't be surprised. Again, did very well with it. I, I just had it as being another police song. And mm. maybe I just already had that in my head because I was mm. sleuthing around listening for Stuart Copeland. Mm. But I do also see the Peter. Yeah. And, and, and now you've said it, I absolutely 100% hear that police thing in it as well. Yes, you're absolutely right. 
I'd love to hear the police do all of acting very strange. <laughs> <laughs> that could be their next tour that they do. You know, people say we play an entire album, but they're not going to play one of their albums. Yeah. They're play an obscure Mike Rutherford solo album. People say Small Creeps Day. No, I'm going to play Acting Very Strange. That's a little weird. But it's police What's the opposite of a sellout tour? <laughs> no sales. We actually had negative tickets sold for this show yes. somehow. So. Don't you want to hear Sting do some sort of tantric version of couldn't get arrested? That's right. yeah. <laughs> a little bit more for 10 hours. Well, that's fantastic. That just broke my brain. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you come to Tabletop Genesis for. Once you think of the idea, you'll be like, how could this not have happened already? <laughs> and as I've said, I'm not big on the playing the whole album thing, but if, if the police or Mike Rutherford were to play this whole album live, I would go see it. So, I would go see it. Yeah. So if you're listening. That's right. <laughs> Mike, you are touring with the mechanics in England later this year. Maybe pull out this album. Get Nick Collins to uh, learn some of these drum bits. I have to say that the other thing that, that I want to say with regards to this this album, and this might be a good way of moment to, to talk about it, is, is that there are very much two eras of Mike Rutherford. where mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't really understand sort of like, you know, Mike Rutherford in the early days it was like it's big chords or heart string pulling ballads. Mm. You know, those really are the two things that he, you know, it's either the sort of the man of our times or the follow you, follow me kind. Those are really sort of like the two things where I think Rutherford excels. And, and, and then you've got the latter half, which is, as I said, which is almost like a, he becomes a lot more of a sort of like a smooth operator, if you will, sort of like comping rather than featuring in in songs. He writes songs and then his guitar parts are very subtle and muted. And I, I like to think of, of, of Rutherford essentially sort of like it's a little bit like a trapeze artist swinging from one trapeze to another. And I genuinely do think that He's undergoing a change right on this in the middle of this album. This is a, a moment of him searching out, and this is maybe one of the other reasons why I don't think people give it a, a, a good shake. I mean, over and above the vocals, there's a lot of experimentation, even though it's within a sort of like a commercial setting. And he's trying out new sounds. He's trying out new things. And I, I, I genuinely think that not necessarily this track in particular, but as the album as a whole, he genuinely is evolving as an artist and because it takes pace it takes t uh, over a glacial period of time you might not necessarily notice the uh, the change that was taking place in uh, in mike's writing at this point absolutely that was one of my notes too is that mike loves weird noises <laughs> yeah. and you have that interlude mm. on here where he does have that like kind of sort of computery digital sound mm -hmm. and you, you should remember as well that you know that mama drum machine intro is mike mm -hmm. he played around with that and you know really liked playing with the drum machine whereas phil was a bit more reluctant wasn't he to right. adopt that yeah, like Mike not being a drummer to kind of come up with some interesting sounding things that might not technically be correct, but that had their feel and, and you know, character to them is the word that they'd also use in Genesis a lot, where it's like if you had something with character, you can build off of it and kind of it would, it would be something interesting versus just a normal, you know, people using a drum machine just to replace a drummer. 
you know, the, the drum parts that, that they would use the drum machine for in Genesis and in the solo careers were often, it was its own part. It wasn't just keeping time. And so that's, I think, something that Mike is is good at. Overall, I, I generally like this song. I thought that it was, you know, something that, you know, again, a lot of chorus in there. But I also liked the I don't want to know. And then it was I don't want to know, you know, I, the little change of the rhythm in saying the words at least made it in the repetition, made it a bit more interesting. Well, with that. We come sadly to the last track on this album. And so I just have to go and hide away. <laughs> <laughs> most traditionally Rutherfordian Rutherfordian sounding track on this album as far as I'm concerned like if if this were on Small Creeps Day I it would have slotted right in there or or on Duke it would have been you know one of these songs that you know has such a Rutherford feel to it to me it could have been on Small Creeps I thought it's good good way to end the album uh, especially with the uh, outro guitar I think there's some guitar solo I like the chorus. I like the string synth strings. Mm-hmm. Might have been real strings. They're not. They're real strings. Yeah, the real strings. Yeah, the like real strings. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. right. I said I like the real strings. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, this is again. I, I hate to belabor the point, but another song that probably could have been a great hit single with a stronger, more confident voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can see he's definitely trying very hard on the song to like give it some feeling and and give it the pathos and and whatever kind of feel that he's heard Phil give some of his love ballads. And it, for me, it, it just doesn't work as well. But the song itself is a good song. I just you know would like to hear it sung by maybe Paul Carrick or 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 somebody different. 
And it doesn't really belong on this album. It just, mm, right. it's my favorite one, but it just doesn't sort of slot in with the others. One other comment I wrote down was, you know, when it starts with the strings, which is so unexpected compared to the rest, all I could think of is Aunt Phillips, like sitting at home going strings because he hated how much <laughs> they added strings to from Genesis Revelation. Mm, right, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, they're still putting strings on these songs. What are they doing? <laughs> well, that's, uh, you, I would imagine... And to somebody who worked so close with Mike, both in the Genesis days and then throughout the 70s on different bits and bobs around there. And I kind of can picture him sitting down, putting the, the new Mike Rutherford album on his turntable and listening to this and being like, what is going on here? You know, but because it's, it is so not what what his friend has done in the past. Kind of what Simon was saying about it being an artist in development. I could see that people might who were close to Mike could appreciate the change in the development over time, but did they like the outcome at the time? That would be interesting to me to know. Yeah. So, or did they even listen to it? You know, that's, I would have to think yes, but you never, there is know. a very, there is a very interesting point, which I think uh, puts this particular track into context, which is if you want to hear two members of Genesis or, um, on solo albums how they approach ballads listen mm. to this track and then listen to peter gabriel's waiting for the big one mm. and you'll see the similarities in their approach and how they arrive at completely different destinations could you go a little bit deeper into that like what do you think gabriel's approach is compared to rutherford's and vice versa the best example i can give uh, from these two tracks that I've, I've mentioned are the drum breaks okay. in the middle you listen to the drum break in waiting waiting for the big one and you listen to the drum break in uh, hideaway and you'll hear a lot of similarities but you'll also hear a huge amount of difference you can hear they both wanted something which broke the song up which tried to do something a little bit different but they go in almost total opposite directions you mean here comes the flood or waiting for the big one? waiting for the big one. If you hear waiting for the big one, there are these long pauses oh, as okay. the drums yeah. flam their way around the kit. <laughs> and Rutherford does exactly the same thing on this track, but he doubles it with the strings. Okay. We'll have to, that's the homework for tabletop Genesis <laughs> listeners out there is to get us essays comparing and contrasting these yeah. two songs. And I will admit that I'm very much approaching this from a songwriter angle, but mm. it is very interesting to see how people with very similar upbringings arrive at very different conclusions when it comes to their songwriting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fascinating because there is so much of the DNA of each other in each other's albums that you can see in these Genesis tracks, Genesis solo related tracks, because they kind of go in the same directions, but in different ways. And I love that about it because you're kind of getting the benefit of five, six band members worth of albums. There was an Ant Phillips album that I listened to. I think it might've been like Sail the World or something like that. That was from the mid eighties. And the first time I heard it, it was one of the, his kind of soundtrack things that he had done for some documentary, but 
it was from the mid eighties. And I'm like, a lot of this stuff wouldn't be out of place on invisible touch. It's a different direction, but it's the same type of feel. And again, not exactly the same production, but Aunt Phillips material could have fit into Genesis throughout their careers in different ways. And I think that's something that you can see with Gabriel's solo album and with all of their albums, there are tracks on there where you're like, oh, this could fit in with Genesis and this track could have fit in on Duke, you know, maybe not Abacab because they were trying to kind of do a break from their old sound. But this also feels like Mike's like last kind of song in this feel and style. I agree. And of saying like, this is how I would write. And this is so in that feeling that I'm going to put it as the last track on this album. It is a great final track, but I'm probably not going to write like this anymore. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, Rutherford, if there was one thing you could say that Rutherford brings to both his own writing and Genesis in general is the melancholy. Mm, yes. And I love me some good melancholy. That's for sure. <laughs> I was to go buy his albums, John Cougar Melancholy. He was, he was cool. <laughs> I, well, that's a different topic. That's right. We'll talk about him that's later. Right. Tabletop Melancamp. <laughs> yeah. Tom, now that we've gotten to the end of side two. I am just, I'm sorry. We can't finish like talking about Hideaway without talking about George Harrison. <laughs> oh, okay. Is, you've heard me talk about this oh, wait, so yeah. much. Okay. Yeah. My conspiracy theory, which isn't at all that what a great little slide guitar solo in there by George Harrison. <laughs> So and this is the hill I will die on. <laughs> has done an uncredited yes. guest spot on this album. Absolutely. Nailed it. Absolutely <laughs> nailed it. And I do have some kinds of proof. Um, I think <laughs> I've thought about it. That's my proof. has okay. talked about it or has like posted YouTube comments saying that actually, no, it is George Harrison. And I know that um, like Gary Brooker was recording an album at the farm at a sort of similar time and George guests on that as well. So I feel like it has to be true, <laughs> but just from the sound too, because I don't yeah. think that's Daryl. It doesn't sound like it's not Mike. Right. 
have have you looked in any Beatles slash George Harrison website forums and maybe put the question out there? Because there are some of these people, especially in their Beatles days, where they like every day of their the four Beatles lives, uh, the Fab Four, I think they're called, have been documented like on February 22nd. This is what they did. And it's like. So I wonder if somebody out there with with George Harrison, who's an uber George Harrison fan, has dived into this also. Maybe. I have drafted an email to Martin Ford. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you should send that that out. Yes. And you can report back to us. We can do a special breaking news episode of Tabletop <laughs> Genesis. And we'll give you the platform that you deserve for having this discussion. So, so, and if any listeners out there want to confirm or deny, hopefully confirm this possible story, we'll have to give it a chance. So, But Simon, I mean, you were enthusiastic about it too. Do you hear it? Do you think that- Absolutely 100. The moment you said it, I, I leapt on it like a horse <laughs> and rode it into the sunset. <laughs> All right. Well, well, Tom and I will maintain some journalistic integrity and <laughs> yes. wait for the, yes. you know, trust but verify as the line goes. So cool. Well, my, my question to Tom, though, is we got to the end of the second side. So your first listen impressions when you got to the end of the second side, what were they? I like that there were two songs that sounded different than what I'd heard on the first side. Okay. So there was a little bit more variation in sound, I figured, on the second uh, side. And those two songs were Hideaway and... Couldn't get arrested. <laughs> okay. They, sure. they sounded different than okay. what I heard. Every other song seemed to have a overall same feel, similar right. feel. But those two were a little bit different. Again, it's funny. I, I couldn't tell you what I don't want to know sounds like. I, I didn't listen to it. And if there were any keen listeners... <laughs> I don't think I said a word during our talk about that song. And if you did, I'll edit you out. <laughs> yes, you can take me out just to, just to make that statement true. But but overall, I, I, I'm i glad I got to listen to this album. It's part of their history. Yeah. Solo members, it, it all it's all part and par- parcel to Mike's sound on his own, what he brought to Genesis. Experiments that he did with this album, as I said, were probably used in Genesis material, mm-hmm. like with Mama. So it's, you you couldn't have gotten some of the later stuff without him having to reach this step in his creative process at some point, whether or not you like it or don't like it. This was how he evolved. And I, I appreciate that. So I just remember, so you said during the Wikipedia article, this came out in September of 82, correct? Right. That's what so it there may here. have been people at the Milton Keynes reunion concert holding up their soaked album in the front row saying, Mike Rutherford, play a track from this. Gabriel. No, there was no one. <laughs> no one. Nobody was doing that. No. Do you know, that sounds like the most nightmarish scenario. <laughs> <laughs> to be covered in mud and rain and holding up a copy of Act of Grace. Are you find this for me? So, there's got to be somebody what is my out life there who come? did that. Somebody. <laughs> Excellent. So, well, all right. So, we're now at the point where we each talk about our favorite track first and then we go into the poll correct correct we're gonna talk about calypso oh right sorry oh yeah yeah Yeah, the beer moth that is calypso (laughs) let's segue back into there was one b-side on this album called calypso which i mentioned a little bit in past because one of the songs had a bit of a calypso feel to it and simon reminded us of this track's existence 
and said, are we going to talk about Calypso? And I'm like, well, I guess we have to now that we've brought it up. side of hideaway correct yes Yes. yeah and so and i mentioned the this album being very you know maybe the songs need another draft calypso sounded like a demo to me it didn't sound like there were any other musicians but mike on it and it's a nice little track you know it's i enjoyed it yeah it's the very definition of a little ditty yes (laughs) (laughs) and i do i just oh go ahead no, you go. I, I do wonder if it was developed at all, but they just abandoned it in recording or if it was like, oh, it's part of the mix, but it just didn't go anywhere. Th- those are all valid questions. Yes. And if there's ever I've... a reissue with this album, which I've been pushing for, I would love to get a 5.1 mix of this and maybe a little bit because it's a very tinny album. It, it, there's it a lot is. of high end yeah. there. And I think that. You know, if the multi-tracks exist and they can be kind of, you know, rebuilt and everything, it can sound a little better, you know, just with, you know, a bit more production, a bit more opening up of the arrangements there, too. So give me give me this in 5.1. <laughs> I kind of wanted some steel drums. Yeah, obviously. if You're it's Calypso. Go for it. right. Lean into it all the way and uh, add that layer for the, the new version. Have it be a bit more relaxed there. I, I think the chances of anybody wanting to sink any money whatsoever into <laughs> a remaster or a reissue of this album is pretty remote. That said, for years and years and years, I've wanted to to just completely cover this album and and sing the parts and stuff. Simon, because, you have your new your new project yeah. on the horizon. Yes. It's not something I've ever mentioned to anybody because I still want to work in the music industry. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it is something which I've I've often sort of like, you know, as I'm gradually, you know, happily falling asleep one night 
have often thought about whether or not it would be a fun thing to do because I genuinely think that, you know, and Calypso is a, is a classic example of that, which is there are loads of really good songs. And I often think to myself, would it be better with, with, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm a better singer than anybody in, you know, especially sort of like, you know, I, I, I pride myself on being able to sing a little bit of lead vocals, but it, it comes down to the fact that I do, th- I often feel that this album get shortchanged yeah well if if this project ever happens you have to get the three of us to do the maxine back oh yeah yes yes, yes. Uh, i think i should do that in key and in tune but yeah i i I would love to hear covers of these songs because i think that there there are there is good material here calypso you can find on youtube if you don't have the single i listened to it once literally my first thought when it ended was like that's a nothing burger (laughs) that was it yeah (laughs) it just didn't do anything for me it just kind of was in and out and that's it yeah i was more impressed that mike actually had the single (laughs) yes than the single exists (laughs) holding up the singles right here so i mentioned i think before recording to tom that i i did go through a spree of you know maybe back in the late 2000s kind of going on ebay and buying a lot of picture sleeve singles because i do i'm not a big vinyl collector but i do like 45 singles 45 rpm singles that have picture sleeves to them and all the the picture sleeves are variations of the the album kind of distorted mike rutherford cover the one for uh what is it there is a there's a vat the maxine promo single has a short version and long version on here so i would and it's a promo copy only not for sale so maybe that's why it didn't, maybe that's why it didn't chart anywhere it was not for sale. <laughs> so. i have to say that one of the other things i tried to do uh was get uh the ai generative program dali <laughs> to produce some alternate album covers Oof. Uh, based on the original but unfortunately i'd run out of credits for this month so oh. <laughs> well maybe well, we were talking month. about earlier about if we, there's a filter that does like fun fair yes uh versus we were gonna like photoshop us as the four people <laughs> yes. in the background yep. <laughs> so take a picture of yourself just standing there and, and tom can manipulate that <laughs> it I will, shall be done i will say the one other thing about calypso i just wanted to make a note of was that there's a Queen song from a couple years later off of The Miracle called uh, Rain Must Fall that had the same vibe to me as this track. Mm. Um, and, and it did get my foot tapping, this this demo track of everything. But like, like Tom said, I do think that, you know, of, of the songs that are not on this album, Calypso would have, I think not added much to this track and he certainly had the space if he wanted to add it to this album because again it's 38 minutes long it could have fit on a side a or b side one or two and he chose not to even develop it and put it on there so Mm. i think the artist decision at that point was correct can i uh, just return to the fact that we have now spent nearly 10 minutes talking about an obscure b-side <laughs> of an obscure album in the first album. place so yeah. that's uh fine so so with that i think it's time for us to talk about each of our favorite tracks on this album it's maxine uh, it's not my favorite song of all time but there's just something about that track it's the one which when i first heard the album that was the one that i was singing mm. it's it's a big bombastic happy little baby Mm -hmm. (laughs) i will say that i voted for in the poll i voted for couldn't get arrested 
Because at the time when I voted, it was it was in my head. And I'm like, I think I really like this song. And I was like, let me see if there's anyone else on the planet who voted for this track. And so we'll find out with Tom's poll in a bit. I, I fully applaud your uh, your serendipitous <laughs> choice yeah. there. But at the time I voted for it, and again, but listening to the album again this morning, like I said, I I might have actually, this morning I might have chosen who, Who's Fooling Who. I think this is an album that would probably be in the top tier of every time I listen, my favorite track might change. In some ways, just because I'm not as super familiar with the tracks as as a lot of these other albums. And it's also, even though I said couldn't get arrested, it's not like that track is miles ahead of my number two on this on this album. So one day it might be acting very strange itself or, you know, it could be hideaway or whatever. I can I can see it changing depending upon my mood and the weather. So Thomas, Catherine, Thomas or Catherine, oh, yes. Catherine. <laughs> I think it has to be Hideaway for me. I like the strings. I like the oboe. I think it is at one point. And as we were saying before, it is kind of his goodbye to the way that he used to write it. So if it is kind of a swan song in some ways, that makes it even better. And any me. and it's any just... track with George Harrison gets bonus points <laughs> right away. <laughs> <laughs> but his vocals are also just I find smoother mm-hmm. on yeah. this one too. It's it's yeah. more. It's the most pleasant listen yeah. of any of them. Excellent. Thomas. Well, Mike, I know we were B-side bros in a former episode. Yes. But we're bros on this one. I put my vote for Couldn't Get Arrested. Woohoo! <laughs> All right. I know, I know Catherine and Simon are like, you two are mental. <laughs> uh, but for me, it was, I say, one of the two songs that sounded different and stood out from the rest of them. Mm-hmm. I loved its early 80s kind of like in your face snarl kind of thing. It was the one song that I thought Mike's vocals fit. Well, I liked the catchy chorus. Couldn't get I arrested. Loved, <laughs> couldn't get it. I, I like I like I like the drum sound in it and I love the quirky ending where he's like it's almost like a what do they call that the not a roundabout, but not not around, uh, just sort of like around, the, around. Like it's kind of right. And it's like kind of like there's there's different vocals effects and at the very end couldn't get it i just it was a fun track and i just really like it catherine and simon are scoffing at us <laughs> over this video I, I, right I, now. I, I don't wish to mean to sound mean or anything but you two are a bunch of sonic hobos <laughs> <laughs> that's the best compliment i've heard today so and i appreciate that so tom i know i know what i like yes i like what i know and that's couldn't get arrested so so tom what did our what did our populace say about this in tom's poll Tom shows you his bow. Well, I think you two will be relieved to know that couldn't get arrested wasn't the number one track. <laughs> it was okay. not the winner. So so, and, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm all right yeah, with yeah, that. Yeah, I get that. There were six places because there was a three-way tie for fourth place. But coming in last place was Who's Fooling Who. Really? So I guess that didn't okay. really... What percentage I, of uh, the vote a, for A that? caveat that this was probably the lowest voted poll of course since our very first episode yeah yes (laughs) who's fooling who came in with two votes and two percent of the vote (laughs) so that was that was very low yes fifth place was halfway there with nine percent and eight votes then the tie for fourth place all getting ten percent of the vote and nine votes were a day to remember couldn't get arrested 
and I don't want to know. Okay. Well, it just goes to show that couldn't get arrested didn't finish last. Right. No. Yeah. yeah. See, there was there were at least nine other people who agree with us. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh wait, wait. Sorry. In the eight. entire world, sorry. I voted. So there's eight. Did you actually vote in the poll, Tom? Yeah. So seven, seven other, other people. people. <laughs> you seven people win the win the prize for this episode. Yes. So. And the prize is a copy. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> of acting very strange. The prize is you can send us your copy of Acting Very Strange. <laughs> uh, third place was the title track with 16 okay. vote, 16% and 14 votes. And number two was, you know, Simon and Catherine's choices with number two being Hideaway at 18%, 16 votes and the number one track, which I think I, I think we could probably all could have predicted just given it's, you know, people... If you don't know this album, you've probably heard Maxine at some point. And like me, that's the one track I knew before this album yeah. coming in. That was 23%, 20 votes. Okay. Pretty solid. And that's that's a big, fun, dumb song. And I think that, and again, <laughs> in the best way possible. Talking about big and dumb and fun, I bought tickets to go see Cocaine Bear tomorrow, which I expect to be a big, fun, dumb movie. And that's exactly what I want to get out of it. And so going into Maxine... It's like, you know what you're getting with a track like that? And it delivers in spade. I, I can see why that's number one. And there's a there's a YouTube clip of him singing it on some Spanish TV station, really? I think. And uh, it's an Italian him. show. It's like no, kind of that, top of the that, popsy sort of thing. That's what I meant, Italian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like how, how Tom puts these things out and Catherine right away is like, oh, no, that's this Italian <laughs> show. It was uh, this, uh, this show and it was aired at this time at this date. So, you know, you know your Rutherford stuff. That's pretty I, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. <laughs> I, sh I shouldn't mess with the Mike Rutherford website person. Exactly. So final thoughts on this album. Thomas, anything on your front? I would give it a chance and a listen if you haven't so far if you're a big genesis fan who you know went back got everything in their back catalog explored steve's career peter's phil's dabbled in tony's mm -hmm. and even like some mechanic stuff and are a big fan of small creeps day this kind of fills in that gap between the small creeps and the mike and the mechanics yeah. and has some very catchy interesting songs on it and it is worth a listen so if, if you end up not liking it, fine, but just give it a chance and maybe then give it a second chance. Mm -hmm. One of these songs will stick with you and, and you'll be glad you did. Yeah. Yeah. My, my final thought is don't believe the anti-hype. You know, that's <laughs> the, you know, I think that yeah. again, it's, it is certainly not a perfect album and I don't think any of us are saying that it is, but it's, it's not as bad as people say. And I think that there are, there is value to be gotten from it. And mm. so, you know, I think you could also do a compare and contrast of this album and Cured, the Steve Hackett album, because that is also an album that is kind of looked at as a low point in Steve's solo output, I think. And because it's one of the first ones, I think, that he sang on all the way through with nobody else. And it's a bit of its time. And, you know, it's a I think that's from 80 or 81. And, you know, this is from 82. So they're kind of of an era. And, you know, there's, but there's value in that album also. So I think that it'd be, you know, it'd be an interesting pair to listen to in close proximity to each other. Catherine or Simon, who wants to chat about your overall impressions of this? So those are pretty much my thoughts too. I would go into it with an open mind. If you like 
a, a big dumb rock songs <laughs> <laughs> or you know nice stringy ballads yeah there's something for you in it so cool for me this is mike rutherford's world and we just live in it <laughs> <laughs> that's right i hope that all the listeners out there might have if you initially scoffed at oh my god they're actually talking about acting very strange but give it a chance and give it a listen you know maybe either before listening to this podcast or well, saying this at the end you can't listen to it before mm -hmm. at this point but now that you've listened to this podcast and heard some of the clips that we pulled out and kind of put on here give it a shot and see what it does for you and you know after a listen or two if it doesn't work for you then that's fine but you know don't let other people tell you what your opinion about music should be. Let us tell you what your opinion about music <laughs> should be. <laughs> and go from there. So so this is Mike Lord. Tom Roche. Catherine Stratton. And Simon. All right. And we'll see you next time on Tabletop Genesis. Yeah!
for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have the shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast, or send us questions we can address on future episodes. Don, all right. <laughs> Whatever I'm just, you I'm do, I'm just playing a little so I can, so you can remember what it remember is. exactly. It is this, this isn't burned in my brain like other. Helps. I didn't know the album had those ads before it, so <laughs> it was very advanced for its time. It was, yeah. Can I do do my if when you're playing, I'll do the '80s dance that everybody was doing back then, which was this <laughs> dance, which is they go. <laughs> <laughs> the good old speed skate. That's, That's right. it. <laughs> if only we had a video podcast, we could put that and put that out and... there. That's the one. <laughs> All right. Does anybody want to talk about this track first? <laughs>